Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, September 12th, 2022, the 600th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. It comes out to under a quarter per episode. And you will also get all of the writing the moment I release it. You will be supporting me and the work I do and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you don't want to, everything's going to be available to you a couple of days later. And so you can just do that. But I would ask you, if you like the show, to please share it. That is the best thing you can do to support this show without supporting it directly financially. And hopefully we are reaching the point where people who would not have been open to my show at all six months ago or a year ago or two years ago have opened up a bit and begun to question the central narrative and can understand what it is this show is actually about. A good way to bring this show to other people who may be considerably behind on all of this stuff is to have them start back six months ago or a year ago or even potentially back at the beginning because it's probably a lot easier to connect with some of the material with a year's hindsight on all of it than it might be to hear me talk about Burkina Faso and Myanmar and election fraud and the slave trade at the southern border and Operation London Bridge and media blackouts. And hey, I understand all of that. But if we are locked into following along the mainstream narrative, then we will remain months or years behind everything and we will always be 
reacting to events rather than being able to understand them and understand what might be next. So I was out for a bit the other night grabbing a burger with a friend of mine, and we ran into another mutual friend while we were out. And he is a great guy, super intelligent, very faithful. And he spends a lot of his time doing charitable work in Africa. He often spends a month or more each summer over there. And so he had just arrived back. He was gone for about three months. And he was telling me about the contested election that just completed in Kenya, where a man named William Ruto was announced as the winner of the election. And then that outcome was challenged in some pretty interesting ways. And as you might imagine, as you would know for certain, if you've followed along with this show for any amount of time. I am extremely interested in elections around the world, particularly contested elections, because what we see if we're paying attention to all of that is that the same playbook that was run here and is being run here again is also consistently run around the world to varying results, but always by the same people and always to achieve the same outcomes, and quite often on a very similar election apparatus to the one we have here. Now, American media has barely covered this Kenyan election at all, but Breitbart has a bit, and this is from August 31st, 2022, so not quite two weeks ago. Kenya orders presidential election recount after Venezuelans arrested for alleged hacking. Venezuelans, who saw that coming? Kenya's Supreme Court on Tuesday ordered a recount of ballots cast across 15 voting stations on August 9th during Kenya's presidential election, Voice of America reported. And before we go on, let's stop for just a second on Voice of America. Voice of America, this is according to Wikipedia, is the state-owned international radio broadcaster of the United States of America. It is the largest and oldest U.S.-funded international broadcaster. VOA produces digital, TV, and radio content in 48 languages, which it distributes to affiliate stations around the world. It is primarily viewed by a non-American audience. So this is how the American bureaucracy reports about itself to the rest of the world. And there have been some problems there in late 2020. This is from the Daily Caller. Investigation begins after video appears to show two people having sex in Voice of America office building. And somebody filmed a couple having sex in front of a window at the office. So they run a very tight ship over there. Voice of America also hosted a very interesting Mike Pompeo speech toward the end of Donald Trump's first term. So there are a lot of interesting little spots you can choose to dig on Voice of America. But let's get back to the Breitbart article on Kenya. The court issued the edict during its hearing of a formal challenge to the election's result, which saw current Kenya deputy president. William Ruto declared the winner with 50.49% of the vote under circumstances disputed 
by competing presidential candidate Rayla Odinga. The recount request from Rayla Odinga and his running mate, Matha Karua, was for 15 polling stations in four counties, Carrico, Nandi, Nyandarua, and Mombasa, VOA reported, noting that the recounts must be done within 48 hours of August 30th. Rayla Odinga was the presidential candidate for Kenya's opposition, Azimio La Umoja One. Kenyan coalition party in Kenya's general election on August 9th. Odinga's legal team confirmed on August 22nd that it filed a petition with Kenya's Supreme Court in which he formally contested the election's results. Kenya Election Commission Chairman Wafula Chebukati declared Ruto the winner of the presidential election with 50.49% of the vote or by a narrow margin of roughly 230,000 votes. Four of the commission's seven members publicly disowned the results, citing issues with the counting process, VOA recalled on Tuesday. So Ruto wins by a very narrow margin. His opponent, Odinga, challenges the results. Four of the seven people on the election commission say there might be a problem with the results. And we know that elections commissions are always comprised by people of the utmost integrity. Odinga specifically alleged both in his Supreme Court petition and during a public speech on August 22nd that Venezuelan nationals had interfered in Kenya's August 9th general election. The opposition leader told a crowd of his supporters that his legal team had, quote, Enough evidence to show foreigners, those people from Venezuela, were brought into the country to try to steal our victory, but it won't be possible. Kenya's The Nation newspaper published an excerpt of Odinga's Supreme Court petition on August 22nd, which read, Combined with the capability of the foreigners and anyone in possession of the contents and information in the electronic devices to remotely access and manipulate the entire IEBC data and the manifest discrepancies and irregularities manifest during the general election and the tallying, verification of count and declaration of the presidential election result. It is the inevitable conclusion that not only was the presidential election not secure, it is not verifiable, accountable, neutral, or transparent. So in short, they're blaming the machines. Kenyan authorities arrested three Venezuelan citizens at Nairobi's Jomo Kenyatta International Airport in late July after customs officials found Kenyan election materials inside their suitcases. The Venezuelan nationals, who have yet to be named, flew to Nairobi from Istanbul, Turkey. Wafula Chebukati, the chairman of Kenya's Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, that's IEBC, claimed that the three Venezuelans detained at Nairobi's airport in July were, quote, contracted by IEBC to provide support on behalf of Smartmatic International. The company contracted to provide electoral management technology by the commission, the nation reported on August 29th. Smartmatic, the Greek company that won the tender to run the all-encompassing Kenya Integrated Election Management Systems, 
K-I-E-M-S, also insisted that the three Venezuelans arrested at the airport with election kit stickers in their luggage were their full-time employees through a subsidiary company. The newspaper observed separately on August 22nd. The preliminary results of a Kenyan national police investigation obtained by the nation on August 29th revealed that detectives who have been on the case since July now believe that was not the case, referring to the IEBC and Smartmatic's claims that the three Venezuelans were official contractors for the two entities. Kenya's Directorate of Criminal Investigations determined in recent days that the three Venezuelan nationals had illegal access to IEBC servers five months prior to Kenya's general election on August 9th, according to the nation's August 29th report. So we have a few familiar narratives within this article and within this story about the Kenyan election. The most obvious of which is Smartmatic, which is not a Greek company. Smartmatic was started in Venezuela. You can go to Smartmatic's Wikipedia page and not see a single mention of the word Greek or Greece anywhere. Smartmatic was created in Venezuela and first used in the early 2000s. They then acquired Sequoia Voting Systems. We've heard these names before. And then there's an entire section on Wikipedia for Smartmatic's role in the 2020 elections in the United States. And I'll just share a little bit of that. Smartmatic was the subject of accusations of fraud in the aftermath of the 2020 United States presidential election, notably promoted by the personal attorney to President Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, who asserted the company was founded by the former socialist Venezuelan leader, Hugo Chavez, and that it owned and provided software to a related company, Dominion Voting Systems. Giuliani asserted Dominion is a radical left company with connections to Antifa that sent American voting data to foreign Smartmatic locations. Others falsely asserted that Smartmatic was owned by George Soros and that the company owns Dominion. Smartmatic voting machines were not used in any of the battleground states that determined Joe Biden's election victory. And the claim there isn't that Smartmatic owned all those machines. We know who the machine owners were. It's that the same system Smartmatic runs was run on those machines. The claim about the connections to Antifa is a legitimate claim because Eric Coomer himself was the connection to Antifa and Joe Oltman exposed an audio recording a Zoom call or maybe a phone call where Coomer discusses this connection and says that they have it all taken care of. There's no way that Donald Trump will win. And Smartmatic was the company that began suing the likes of Rudy Giuliani and Fox News and Mike Lindell. All of these lawsuits claiming defamation about how their company was portrayed by so-called election deniers. Now, at first glance, you would see these claims made by Odinga, who was the declared loser of that election. And you would think, oh, well, he's talking about Smartmatic. He's talking about machine manipulation. 
We know these are real issues, that these things do exist, that the machines are capable of changing the election outcome. And you might immediately think, it sounds like Odinga got robbed. And that's not a crazy thought to have. We know all about the 2020 election, and we know how this election apparatus is used around the world to steal elections. But you got to look further. And it's also important to remember exactly what we dealt with in the aftermath of Donald Trump's 2016 victory here in America. That's not what they planned for. They planned for the machines to win that election, and it just didn't work. Donald Trump became president. You'll remember in the aftermath of that, people like Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris were blaming the machines for the election outcome. All of this was even well documented in a film called Kill Chain that I believe you can still find streaming on HBO right now. That documentary has video of all of this, all sorts of people contesting the validity of the machine results. And then a few years later, the very same people are telling us that the machines are absolutely unhackable. They cannot be used to manipulate elections. And regardless, CISA says this was the safest and most secure election of all time. But let's get a bit more information about the situation in Kenya. This is from the New York Post, but originally from Reuters. Kenya's William Ruto declared president-elect violent chaos erupts in country. Kenya's elections chief declared deputy president William Ruto the winner of a tight presidential race on Monday, but some senior election officials disowned the result, fueling fears of widespread violence like that seen after previous disputed polls. There is a history of contested elections in Kenya. Hailing the Electoral Commission as heroes after he was declared the winner, Ruto said, There is no looking back. We are looking to the future. We need all hands on deck to move forward. The 55-year-old had made Kenya's class divisions the centerpiece of his campaign to become Kenya's fifth president, promising to reward low-income hustlers. He was also scornful of Kenya's political dynasties. His opponent, Raila Odinga, and President Uhuru Kenyatta, son of the nation's first vice president and president, respectively. Kenyatta, who has served his two-term limit as president, fell out with Ruto after the last election and this time endorsed Odinga, who was making his fifth attempt at winning the presidency. So Odinga was the son of the nation's first vice president and Kenyatta was the son of the nation's first president. So these are clearly men who come from two very powerful political families in Kenya. Their families have been at the forefront of Kenyan politics for quite a while. That's a significant amount of control. You might think of the Bush family or the Clintons, where they just keep coming around for another bite at that apple of power. Once in office, Ruto will have to confront an economic and social crisis in East Africa's most advanced economy, where poor Kenyans already reeling from the impact of COVID-19 have been hit by global rises in food and fuel prices. And that sounds familiar as well. That issue is happening all across the world. 
The worst drought for 40 years has devastated the country's north, leaving 4.1 million people dependent on food aid, while its debt levels have soared. Also, sounds like the United States, particularly the blue states like California, where they are now telling citizens to turn off their TVs to save electricity, which is pretty strange because a few weeks ago, there was a public service announcement you might remember in New York City about what to do in the case of a nuclear bomb going off in New York City. In case of nuclear fallout, there was a three-step program. You had to go inside. That was step one. Step two is you have to stay inside. And step three is you have to watch media. That was really their PSA. So what happens if you're in California and there's nuclear fallout? Is the plan only go inside and stay inside because we just simply can't afford the electricity to allow you to watch TV? But let's move on. Ruto, who heads the Kenya Kwanzaa, the Kenya First Alliance, had appeared to be leading opposition leader Odinga as Kenyans awaited final results of the election held nearly a week ago. Kenya First. Very interesting. Minutes before the chairman of the Electoral Commission, Wafula Chebukati, announced that Ruto had won, his deputy, Juliana Cherera, had told media at a separate location that she and three other commissioners disowned the results. So right before they announced that Ruto was the winner, people on the Elections Commission began claiming election fraud. They sound just like Stacey Abrams. We are not able to take ownership of the results that will be announced because of the opaque nature of this last phase of the general election, she said. The Electoral Commission has seven commissioners. The Electoral Commission has introduced many checks and balances to try to prevent disputes like those that led to violence in which more than 1,200 were killed following the 2007 election. In 2017, more than 100 people were killed after the Supreme Court quashed the initial result over irregularities in the electoral process. Amid fears that vote rigging allegations could lead to bloody scenes like those that followed presidential polls in 2007 and 2017, Chirera urged the parties to pursue any disputes through the courts. Diplomats and international observers were whisked out of the tallying hall before Chebukati spoke as scuffles broke out. Before announcing Ruto as the winner, Chebukati said two commissioners and the Electoral Commission's chief executive had been injured and were being treated. Chebukati said Ruto had won 50.49% of the vote against Odinga's 48.5%. The winning candidate must get 50% of votes plus one. So a straight democratic result, not like in America where we have the Electoral College. Kenya's dollar-denominated government bonds fell by as much as 2.9 cents on the dollar, trade web data showed. The United Nations took note of the results. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric said and encouraged all candidates to, quote, resort to legal channels to address any challenges that may arise. The U.S. Embassy in Kenya urged all parties to work together to peacefully resolve concerns about the election. We ask all political leaders to continue 
to urge their supporters to remain peaceful and refrain from violence, it said in a statement. Odinga did not attend the announcement. His running mate, Martha Karua, later tweeted, it is not over until it is over. Saitabao Kanchori, national chief agent for Odinga's party, the Declaration of Unity Alliance, told reporters outside the tallying center that it would continue to hold Wafula Chebukati to account to the people of Kenya to deliver a free, fair, credible election. In the Kibera slums in Nairobi and Kisumu, both Odinga strongholds, the reaction was immediate. Several plumes of black smoke rose in the streets of Kibera, mirroring similar scenes in Kisumu to the west of the country as people burned piles of tires. Police fired tear gas to disperse the crowds. In Kisumu, Governor Anyang Nyong'o called for calm as protests in part of the lakeside town turned violent after Ruto's victory was declared. He said the Azamio leadership was working to plan its response to ensure justice for Odinga. And Azamio is that same party, the Declaration of Unity Alliance, not the Kenya First Alliance. Amid shouts of we need Raila now, Chebukati must go and no Raila, no peace. Motorcycle drivers honked their horns and people blew into Vuvuzelas and whistles. Threatening no peace if they don't get their way? That sounds exactly like Black Lives Matter, actually. By contrast, the mood in Eldoret, Rudo's home turf, was ecstatic. We are very happy. I believe in the leader who was selected. I believe in the IEBC, the Electoral Commission, said 25-year-old Eldoret resident Kenneth Kibitok. He is about the bottom up. People from down there will be up here, said Kibitok, who had spent all day on a stretch of Eldoret sidewalk, popular with Kenyans who like discussing politics. And you may recall the Molly Ball article in Time magazine from last year, February 4th, 2021. The article was called The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. Part of their plan, part of what was conceived of in the Transition Integrity Project and described in this article was a movement of people from the left, the BLM Antifa crowd, being prepared to take it to the streets in the event that Donald Trump tried to declare himself the winner. This was going to protect Joe Biden's win. They were prepared to do George Floyd riots all over again, but these were going to be saving democracy riots. And they run similar tactics consistently around the world. In Myanmar, after Suu Kyi stole the election, the George Soros, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton ally, the military deposed her and she is still in prison and her prison term has been lengthened. But in the face of all that, people took to the streets Organized protesters, much like BLM Antifa, Myanmar had their own version over there to create chaos. And eventually Soros related funds were frozen and seized by the Myanmar military who deposed Suu Kyi. 
But let's go a bit deeper still on Kenya. This is from the BBC a week ago. Kenya election 2022. Supreme Court judges deliver boost for democracy. One of Kenya's most controversial politicians, Deputy President William Ruto, will be in a strong position when he assumes the presidency, knowing that he has the seal of approval of the electorate backed by the highest court of the land. The Supreme Court upheld his victory in the 9 August election with a unanimous judgment that left no doubt that he defeated his main rival, Raila Odinga, in a free and fair contest. And this is an interesting framing of this coming from the BBC. The judgment is proof that Kenya's courts are independent and will safeguard democracy, just as they did in the last election in 2017, when they took the unprecedented decision to annul President Uhuru Kenyatta's victory following a challenge by Mr. Odinga. This time, the judges not only threw out Mr. Odinga's case, but they chastised his legal team, saying the court had been sent on a wild goose chase. Political analyst Javas Bigambo told the BBC that the legal process had boosted Kenya's democracy and proved that, in the end, it is the people who decide who their leaders are. Mr. Odinga will now be under pressure to congratulate Mr. Ruto on his victory. This would enhance his reputation as Kenya's father of democracy, rather than coming across as a bad loser. But his defeat is a political tragedy for him and his supporters. Mr. Odinga was at the forefront of the campaign to end one-party rule in the 1990s, but he has never enjoyed the fruits of his struggle to become president, having lost in five elections. In this, his story echoes that of his father, Jaramogi Oginga Odinga, Kenya's first vice president who also failed to rise to the presidency despite the role he played in the campaign against British colonial rule. So according to the BBC, Odinga's family has worked in opposition to British colonial rule, which would normally suggest an opposition to the global communists in general, and rather an attempt to preserve Kenyan independence for Kenyans which is what I imagine we all hope for for all of the people in all of the countries around the world. Mr. Odinga's supporters had hoped that the family's contribution to the nation would finally be recognized with his elevation to the presidency in the 9 August election. The 77-year-old had previously said that this was his last stab at power. Fate has confined him in the same quarters that it confined his father but he has no doubt contributed greatly to the improvement of the electoral process and cemented his significance in Kenya's politics, Mr. Bigambo told the BBC. While Mr. Odinga could argue that previous polls lack legitimacy, he cannot do so with the 9 August poll, as Chief Justice Coombe was emphatic. There was no evidence of the result being rigged in Mr. Ruto's favor. No evidence. Baseless claims. She was also searing in her views on the four members of the election commission who disowned the result, pointing out that they had created unnecessary drama just before election commission chairman Wafula Chebukati announced the result. Are we to nullify the outcome of an election on the basis of a last minute boardroom rupture whose details remain scant? The judges asked, adding that to annul the result would amount to upsetting the sovereign will of the people. And that's the sort of thing that we are consistently told by both sides 
in contested elections. Each side always wants to claim that they represent the will of the people. Mr. Bigambo said the judgment indicated that teamwork in the electoral body was important and infighting gave the commission a bad image. The judgment will certainly be a huge relief for Mr. Chebukati, who can proudly say that he delivered a successful election and withstood pressure to not declare Mr. Ruto the winner by 50.5% of the vote to Mr. Odinga's 48.8% of the vote. In his speech shortly after the judgment, Mr. Chebukati said it was a testimony that the commission conducted a free, fair, transparent, and credible election that met the democratic aspirations of the people of Kenya. Mr. Bagambo said the verdict gives Mr. Ruto more confidence to preside over the affairs of the country, legitimately and legally elected. Mr. Ruto had been magnanimous in his victory speech on 9 August, saying he will strive to unite the nation after a polarizing election. But he also referred to a deep state that had tried to block him from ascending to the presidency. So Mr. Ruto heads the Kenya First Alliance, and he is claiming that he is contesting a Kenyan deep state that was trying to block him from becoming president of Kenya. Mr. Ruto did not identify who or what constitutes the deep state, but it will come as no surprise if he carries out a purge of senior officials in the government and the security services who were seen to be loyal to outgoing president Uruhu Kenyatta. And so that's just another of the many parallels to the situation in the United States around our elections and the elections around the world. It is amazing that their winning candidate claims to be Kenya first and fighting a deep state. Mr. Kenyatta took the extraordinary step of backing Mr. Odinga for the presidency, saying Mr. Ruto could not be trusted with high office. It led to massive fallout between the two men raising questions about whether there will be a smooth transfer of power. And again, same narratives. We were told again and again that Donald Trump was simply too dangerous to be president of the United States of America. And then Donald Trump proceeded to have an extraordinarily successful presidency, made America better in countless ways, while they were attempting to subvert him with various forms of coup for the entire time he was in office. And whatever happened to all of those wars that Donald Trump was supposed to start? He's so dangerous. This gives bearing on future presidents to be careful on who they prefer as their successor. Uhuru has been left with a bad taste in his mouth, Mr. Bigambo said. But the court's verdict makes it clear that power has sapped away from Mr. Kenyatta. And Mr. Ruto is the indisputable president-elect of Kenya. In his speech after the court's judgment, Mr. Ruto took an indirect swipe at Mr. Kenyatta, but was also conciliatory. I haven't talked to him in months. I know he worked hard in his own way, he said to laughter. I take no offense that he decided to choose and support somebody else, and therefore we will remain friends, he said, adding that he would make a call to the president to discuss the transition. Mr. Ruto achieved a stunning victory in the August 9th election, gaining ground in Mr. Odinga's political strongholds in Western Kenya and winning by a huge margin in Mr. Kenyatta's political backyard in Central Kenya. 
His success was down to the fact that he portrayed himself as a hustler, fighting the attempt by two political dynasties, the Odingas and Kenyattas, to hang on to power. His campaign struck a chord with many poor Kenyans, including the youth. He will have to now deliver on his promise to improve their lives. No easy task at a time when Kenya, like many other countries, is facing a cost of living crisis, massive unemployment and a ballooning national debt. So it seems that Ruto's campaign, at least his strategy, is to present himself as the outsider going up against these political dynasties, the Kenya First Alliance. He's fighting against the deep state. So is he Donald Trump in 2016 or is he a tool of the system? Is he more akin to someone like Bernie Sanders, who presents himself as a populist, but only to usher in a socialist headed quickly toward communist agenda. Bernie Sanders portrayed himself as someone willing to take on the corrupt political establishment and then showed himself to be someone happy to empower the corrupt political establishment so long as they gave him millions of dollars in a couple of houses. He now pushes an agenda that is totally in line with the global communist agenda. Bernie Sanders wasn't out there during COVID trying to protect people's jobs and businesses. He was claiming that the pandemic was more proof that we need universal state-run health care. He wasn't out there touting the improvements that Donald Trump ushered in for working Americans. He was doing the bidding of massive public sector unions. And I want to just touch on a couple of more things. This one is from Breitbart. The article is headlined anti-China. William Ruto wins Kenyan presidential election, prompting electoral commission brawl. This is the 16th of August, 2022. Jumping down in the article and citing reporting by The Economist. In this case, Odinga rejected the outcome after four of the seven members of Kenya's election commission said the final count added up to 100.01% of the total vote and the phantom excess votes were enough to make a significant difference in the close race. So the total vote was greater than 100%. And there's one more thing I'd like to note just a little further down. Reuters reported Kenyan's Wearily bracing for a long legal battle over the election results, while African diplomats, the United Nations and the U.S. Embassy pressured Odinga to accept the outcome and withdraw his challenge. Odinga's fiery statement on Tuesday appeared to be a rejection of those pleas. So African diplomats, the U.N. and the U.S. wanted Odinga to stop complaining about the election results. Ruto, who ran on a populist platform that stressed his humble origins and Christian faith and included pledges to reduce China's economic influence in Kenya, gave an upbeat victory speech on Monday in which he said he hailed Chebukati as a hero and dismissed the criticism of the four dissenting electoral commissioners as a sideshow. And even this stance on China is a bit hard to read. We might initially at first glance think, oh, they're anti-China, anti-Belt and Road. That's generally a good thing. And it is generally a good thing. 
But is he anti-China and in what way? If we look at this through the good twin, evil twin paradigm, rather than just thinking about China as China, we can think about the CCP and the nationalist faction in China that wants to return power to the Chinese people. We know that last year after Joe Biden's debacle in leaving Afghanistan, George Soros himself called Xi Jinping the greatest threat to the world which appears to be totally inconsistent with the rest of their history. But who is William Ruto and what is his long game? No search for answers would ever be complete without including the World Economic Forum. And on the World Economic Forum's website, they link to this article from the Australian Institute of International Affairs. This was from September 8th, four days ago. What lies ahead for Kenyan foreign policy? 2022 to 2027. Since Kenya gained independence, its foreign policy has evolved to accommodate changing trends in world affairs. However, as William Ruto prepares to take office, it is important to remember that regime change does not necessarily lead to radical shifts in Kenya's foreign policy agenda. So we're going from the corrupt leadership of the deep state and political dynasties to a candidate who claims to be fighting the deep state and putting Kenya first, and there's not going to be a change in Kenya's foreign policy? In order to accurately predict the likely trends of Kenya's foreign policy post Uhuru Kenyatta's presidency, it is important to first appreciate some basic facts of Kenya's foreign policy, national interests, and concerns that have been at the core of her diplomatic engagements since 1963, when the country attained political independence from British colonial rule. It is our overall view that, over the last 59 years, the fundamentals of Kenya's three core national interests, namely national security and sovereignty, economic growth and development, and regional and global concerns, have remained largely unchanged. The changes that have occurred over the last six decades have been primarily in the ordering and prioritizing of foreign policy interests during the implementation process, the strategies chosen for implementing selected national interests, the idiosyncratic imprint of the incumbent president that then defines the style in the conduct of foreign policy, and the sources of foreign policy guidelines in the absence of a written foreign policy document. But let's jump down toward the end. Guided by this diplomatic history, Kenya's foreign policy going forward is unlikely to radically deviate from the objectives outlined in the 2014 foreign policy document. However, the new Kenyan leader, President-elect William Ruto, will have his own style of leadership and may reorder Kenya's foreign policy priorities to fit the current needs of the country. Ruto is likely to prioritize the advancement of economic interests, even as he seeks leadership in East African community affairs. On matters of security, the peace diplomacy pillar will also continue to occupy an important place in Kenya's foreign policy engagements, due in part to the continuing terror threats and territorial and other disputes in the region. Finally, it is important to note that the political party manifesto and Ruto's campaign promises steered clear from indicating any drastic foreign policy shifts. Instead, Ruto's manifesto emphasizes the enhancement of Kenya's economic status through a bottom-up economic model. 
President Ruto is likely to be guided by an approach that helps reduce the huge external debt, which has risen from two trillion shillings in 2013 to nine trillion shillings in 2022. High inflation pressures, drought and massive unemployment. That is a huge expansion of Kenya's national debt while Uhuru Kenyatta was the president and while William Ruto was the deputy president. The war in Ukraine has also led to commodity price shocks, particularly for fuel, fertilizer, wheat, and other food imports. Kenya's economic engagement with the global community is therefore bound to remain a priority area for the new administration as the country works toward economic recovery. It is therefore our overall expectation that under President Ruto's regime, the economic pillar is likely to be dominant in the prioritization and execution of Kenya's interests abroad. It is unlikely that there will be any substantive changes or deviations from Kenya's foreign policy focus under Kibaki and Uhuru Kenyatta. And so this was written by two professors, one of whom served at the United Nations and the World Trade Organization in Geneva. The last administration was working under a plan called Kenya Vision 2030, which is part of the Global 2030 Agenda and has received support from Kenyatta and Ruto. So there's a lot going on here, and the dynamics are still a bit unclear. I'm going to keep going into this as the news emerges, because it's important to understand these dynamics in relation to the sovereign nationalist movement that continues to emerge throughout the world. And there's more going on in Europe and Canada right now. This is from CBS News Today. Canadian conservatives elect right-wing populist Pierre Polyev to lead fight against Justin Trudeau. Canada's opposition conservative party elected its go-to attack dog as its new party leader Saturday. Pierre Polyev is a firebrand populist who opposes vaccine mandates and blames global inflation on liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He won the party leadership on the first ballot, defeating a moderate centrist candidate with 68% of the votes cast by the party's members. 68%. That is a significant shift toward the sovereign nationalist. The 43-year-old Polyev is a career politician and was a cabinet minister in then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper's government. He embraced Canadians who were against vaccine mandates and supported the freedom truck convoy that paralyzed Canada's capital and blockaded the border with the U.S. And remember, this is the CBS News global state propaganda media outlook on Polyev. We're meant to believe that Vaccine mandates are very good. The trucker protest was very bad. They needed the Emergency Act. They had to put Canada into a national emergency to deal with the truckers. And you'll note in the phrasing that he blames global inflation on liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Well, he blames the Canadian part of the global inflation on Trudeau because Trudeau supports the agenda that is causing global inflation. It's not somehow that Justin Trudeau made 
inflation a huge issue around the world. It's that Justin Trudeau did his part to make it a problem in Canada. Poliev won the party base, attracted large crowds and signed up thousands of new members. Nelson Wiseman, a political science professor at the University of Toronto, said an apt U.S. comparison for Polyev is Republican Senator Ted Cruz, but without the anti-abortion stance. He is a right wing populist, Wiseman said. Most Canadians recoil at his populism now, but he'll moderate some of his positions and soften his language and image. I expect the next election to be about the incumbent, an incumbent with growing political baggage, that being Trudeau. Poliev, who led his campus conservative club while at university, has been a member of parliament since age 25. He has urged the firing of the head of Canada's central bank, calling him Trudeau's personal ATM machine. He also promoted cryptocurrency and has said he will defund the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In 2005, Polyev joined other conservative lawmakers on the losing side of a vote by parliament to approve same-sex marriage. In 2008, he apologized after questioning whether Canada was, quote, getting value for all of this money by compensating survivors of the country's widely criticized indigenous residential school. Polyev is a married father of two who represents a district near Ottawa. He was adopted by two school teachers and says he was born in Calgary, Alberta, to a teenager who couldn't raise a child. Trudeau channeled the star power of his father, the Liberal Party icon and late Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, when he first won election as premier in 2015 and has led his party to the top finish in two elections since. But his popularity has faded. It's worth noting that Justin Trudeau's actual father, of course, is Fidel Castro. However, the liberals and the opposition New Democratic Party reached an agreement that would see Trudeau's party keep power until 2025. Trudeau has said he will lead his party into the next election. And isn't that great that they were able to reach an agreement to keep Trudeau in power? So this is a significant shift in Canadian politics, which is often considered to be as globalist as it comes, considering not only their relationship with the British crown, but also with the World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab himself has boasted that he has infiltrated Canada's government and is responsible for like half of Canada's leadership. Justin Trudeau has remarked that the CCP's organization is one that he would like to replicate for Canada because it's just easier to get things done that way. And we have problems so big like climate change that it would simply be better to have a communist dictator in power rather than having to do all that government stuff to go through the proper channels as outlined by a constitution. It would be much better if he could just decide everything for Canada on his own. And last week, I noted how there was an election coming up in Sweden this weekend. This is Matthew Tiermond on The War Room this morning, explaining the results of that election. Because what happened in Sweden was a political earthquake. What happened in Canada was a political earthquake. What's going to happen on the, what, the 25th of September, as we launch our new show, Bannon's War Room Rome, is going to be a political earthquake. This is the party of Davos. Is Now we're at the ramparts, and the barbarians are at the gate. Are they not, Matthew Tiermann? They have breached the fortifications and the ramparts. 
the Swedish Dems most likely will be a part of the Swedish government. Could you imagine the horse trading and wrangling behind the scenes? We are going to get the moderate prime minister because, you know, Jimmy Atkinson, they cannot make him prime minister yet. But they have the power. They have more votes, more parliamentary seats. Can you imagine a Swedish Dem as foreign minister of Sweden? Can you imagine the New York Times and Ann Applebaum and the Atlantic saying democracy's under attack in Sweden? They're a great paragon of supranational governance with the Nobel Prize and Greta Thunberg and climate change and, and multicultural diversity. Very important data point, the regional distribution of the electorate and how they came out yesterday. Malmö, Sweden, Raheem wrote about it in no-go zone. The city has been absolutely destroyed. The region, Scania in the south, 40% Swedish Dems, more than two to one, the social Dems leftist incumbents. And for more, this is from Fox News today. Swedish right wing coalition poised to win slim majority amid rising crime. Swedish voters on Sunday gave a razor thin majority to a coalition of right wing political parties amid anger over rising gang violence in largely immigrant neighborhoods, according to early projections. And you will remember that Sweden has been flooded over the last decade with immigrants being pushed through Europe from the Middle East. You heard Tierman mention Malmo, which is often called the rape capital of Europe as a direct result of that influx of Middle Eastern immigrants and the lack of substantial pushback to any of that from Sweden's government run by socialists. And you might remember that Bernie Sanders often cited Sweden as an example of what the United States should turn into. On Monday, a conservative opposition bloc, including the populist anti-immigration party, the Swedish Democrats, had an extremely narrow lead over the incumbent center left with 94 percent of the votes counted. Now, Remember how these things are always presented. This party, oh, they're right wing. They're the nationalists. They're the extremists. What we really need is the incumbent center left, which is how they always describe the global communist establishment. Analysts expect the final tally will confirm a conservative bloc win, but the election was so close that electoral officials said they would not have the final result until outstanding postal votes and votes from abroad are counted. With eight parties contending for seats in the 349 member Riksdag, Sweden's parliament, none can secure a majority of 175 seats, meaning that laws can only be passed with different parties working together. The not yet final count indicated that the conservative bloc would have 175 seats and the center left would have 174. According to preliminary figures, the Sweden Democrats won 20.6 support in Sunday's vote, up from 17.5 four years ago. The results so far mark a significant success for the right wing populist Sweden Democrats, which won its best result since entering parliament in 2010. Sweden Democrats founders in the 1980s, had links to neo-Nazi movements. But the party has since purged its radical elements under the leadership of 43-year-old Jimmy Ackeson. And it's funny to attempt to link right-wing parties with neo-Nazi movements, especially as the global communists are supporting 
actual neo-Nazis in Ukraine. So like 2016, we see another emergence of a worldwide sovereigntist and nationalist movement taking shape. We still have the Italian election to come and we have Brazil's election to come. And in both of those, we expect that the sovereigntist nationalist leaders will win. Georgia Maloney in Italy and Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. And all of this makes sense as the world continues to react to the awakening that is occurring and continues to react to the way that the pandemic, the very deadly pandemic was handled all around the world. The crushing of economies and societies by the global communists. They are sparking a massive backlash. Now, I want to hit just a couple more things before I close out the episode. The first is that there was some reporting this morning about a surprise trip by President Donald J. Trump to Washington, D.C. He got off the plane in what were called his golf shoes. He looked like he had just come off the course and had to immediately go to Washington, D.C. in a hurry. There was speculation that this was because an indictment was imminent. He didn't have time to change his shoes before getting on the plane or even while he was on the plane. Maybe he didn't have access to his shoes because he's under arrest. And either that was complete and total nonsense or they're trying to preview something. But either way, Donald Trump posted on Truth Social today, working today at Trump, Washington, D.C. on the Potomac River. What an incredible place. And he's talking about Trump National Golf Club in Washington, D.C. So the media and the Blue Anon conspiracy theorists on Twitter are suggesting that a Donald Trump indictment is eminent. And Donald Trump is saying he's just working at one of his properties. And finally, I just want to check in with Kamala Harris for a minute began by asking the vice president about how over two decades our focus has had to shift from foreign terror to the threat from within. I think it is very dangerous and I think it is very harmful and it makes us weaker. Um, you know, I've, I have met with and I've had conversations with over 100 foreign heads of state, presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, kings. And, you know, when we as the United States walk into those rooms around the world, we have had the honor and privilege historically of holding our head up as a defender and an example of a great democracy. And that then gives us the legitimacy and the standing to talk about the importance of democratic principles, rule of law, human rights. And one of the things, though, that comes with that privilege is that we hold ourselves out to be a role model, which means the rest of the world, like any role model, watches what we do to see if it matches up with what we say. So you look at everything from the fact there are 11 people right now running for secretary of state, the keepers of the integrity of the voting system of their state who are election deniers. You've got... And what's that sending? What message does that send to the world? 
Well, you couple that with people who hold some of the highest elected offices in our country who who refuse to condemn an insurrection on January 6th. And I think what it sends is a signal that is that causes people to question, hey, is America still valuing what they talk about, which is the integrity of democracies, which means protecting rule of law and the, and, and, and the sanctity of these systems. And speaking up when they are attacked. Now, when we hear something like that, I think that it's natural, or at least it was natural to hear that as Kamala Harris somehow suggesting how we are viewed by the people of the world as represented by the leaders of the countries around the world. But it sounds a whole lot different when you think about who the leaders around the world that the Harris and Biden illegitimate administration is meeting with. These people are actually concerned in a significant way that the election apparatus and the United States role in the global order is shifting. The United States doesn't have the same power to enforce the will of the global communists in countries around the world. They're not there to protect the fraudulent outcomes of elections as they were in the past. And it would be nice if I had something definitive to say about Kenya relative to what else we see emerging throughout the world and what we expect in our own midterms in November. But I'm not quite there yet because it is a really complex situation and the roles as we might normally see them, the ways they're being communicated are so strange. Was the outcome of the election a result manipulated by election machine fraud and Smartmatic as we know it could be? Or should we assume that the election is valid because they found that there was no evidence of fraud? Is William Ruto really Kenya first? Is he trying to take down the deep state or is William Ruto the deputy president of Kenyatta who is supporting Kenya Vision 2030 and was in office while all of that insane debt spending was occurring on the Vision 2030 priorities, all of which are global communist priorities. So that remains to be seen. But what is clear is that we are staring at the same kind of political environment that we saw around the world in 2016. And we should be very happy about that because sovereign leaders of sovereign nations are on the rise and the nationalist sentiment among the citizens of the world is on the rise as well. And every country should be putting their own country first their own citizens first. It's not America first worldwide. It's that we want sovereign nationalists leading every country for the benefit of their own people. Regardless, the same playbooks are being run all around the world over and over and over again. And they're all developing along different timelines. That much should be clear. And the same global communist order is involved everywhere. Once you figure out what their needs are and what they are actually going for in these countries around the world, it makes it a lot easier 
to understand their contested elections and their political violence and the root causes of the collapse we see in their societies that mirrors the collapse we see in societies around the world. And this is why these geopolitical issues matter so much. First of all, the world is interconnected. But second of all, it allows us to have a better understanding of what's going on here. How is it that Smartmatic is just involved continually in contested elections around the world? How is it that well-organized and funded political violence erupts in countries that have ostensibly nothing to do with one another? It's because that's what the playbook calls for. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!